Good morning, everybody. Let us start learning. Today we're going to be learning our Shira sponsored Lili Nishmas Leib Asher Ben Avram Am Abish. That is Halevi, that is Mr. Saif's father, whose Yotzad is Yud Elul this coming Monday evening, Tuesday. And uh, he should be a Melitz Yosher for Yontai Mishpacha. Um, we also, just, uh, just to mention that today, this morning, is the dedication of a shul building on Edward Avenue. The Ili Nishmas, Mr. Julius Sand, who just passed away this last year. That's going to be um, um, for Karen Rosenblum and Tammy Freeman's father is, um, is this morning. We also just like to include um, our learning Ili Nishmas. It's Yehuda Ben? Mayor. Um, who's also, who's... Uh, Who's your, who's, uh, who's dedication this morning? Can I join with my mother-in-law this week? Okay, and, and Alan's also uh, I'm adding in for Leilin Nishmas. Chana River Bas Reb Chaim. Who's my your wife's father? No, okay. My wife's mother. Okay. So, so that's uh, that's Leilin Nishmas. Alan's ma- mother-in-law. Yud Aleph. Yeah. Yud Aleph Elo. This uh, coming Tuesday evening. This topic is is one which I've I've enjoyed immensely learning about. And um, I've been anticipating talking about learning with you for a long time. Just never had the opportunity to really get down to it. So it all started a, a, number, a little while back. It started many years ago, actually, um, with a discussion I had in D.C. With a, with a friend of mine after a particular drosh that I gave. And then recently, actually, Dr. Honigman, who I don't see here today, uh, gave me a book. To, oh, Dr. Honigman's right over here. So he gave, me a, <coughs> he gave me a book to read called The Quantum Enigma by two physicists from, uh, from California, Bruce Rosen, Rosenblum and Fred Kuttner, who wrote on this particular subject, and it is very, very fascinating because it's a very good balance between the science and also, the, um, also it is, uh, it is uh, um, accessible to, to um, um, a regular reader as well as it being um, a, complex, a complex book. What I'd like to do with you is the following. Let's contemplate this, uh, the, this subject from a grossly practical perspective, a historical perspective, and then a Torah perspective. Okay, so three, three tiers. Here's, here's how, how it starts, and this is an example the book gives, which I think is, just helps us sort of gain access to the problem that we have at hand. So here we have it. So imagine you have a scientist. Now, this is the, the, a, a scientist who hears about um, a particular tribe in the Far East that, it, that has magical powers. And he doesn't believe in what the stories he's hearing regarding this tribe. So he goes out himself to investigate. They live on the top of a mountain in the Far East. He travels there. He gets a plane to the nearest village. He takes a, a train to the, the, the nearest outpost. And then uh, he goes on a cattle car to the closest place to hike up the mountain to get to this village. And he arrives at the village. And there's a, a guide there waiting for him and, um, who understands that he's here to see, to witness the unusual. And, he say, and so he welcomes this American scientist in, and he takes him to, uh, to, a, place where he, uh, to a place where he said, we can perform what you call an experiment, which is where we, where we display what, um, what uh, the, the, I mean, certain observable details. So he said, okay, let's go for it. So he takes him to the edge of the village, and there are two huts that stand 20 feet apart from each other. And in front of the huts um, is a young man and a woman. While holding hands. And he says, so the, the villager says to the, to the scientist, what we're going to do is the following. What we're going to do is, we're going to blindfold you. And um, so he blindfolds and he says, and he says, now what we're going to do is, I'd like you to ask the question, which hut are the, the, are the young man and woman in? So he says, okay. So he takes the, the blindfold off and he says, which hut are the man and the woman in? And, they, and, and they, 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 he says, that was a very good question. He opens up the one door on the left 
And lo and behold, they're in it, and he opens up the door on the right, and they're not in it. He says, look, perfect. You see, just demonstrably, that your question caused that to them to be in one hat. So he says, okay, well, that's not very impressive. So he says, well, let's do it again, because, you know, for experimental data, you need to be able to repeat things. So he says, okay, let's do that again. So he blindfolds them again. He says, let's ask the same question. Which hut are they in? Okay, and it turns out they're in the right hut. Okay, fantastic. They do this seven times, and the scientist is getting a little, a little, a, a little perturbed. There's nothing really new happening here. So, he says, so the villager says, well, now we're going to do a different experiment. What I'm going to do is the following. I'm going to blindfold you. And then he says, I want you to ask the question, which hut is the man in and which hut is the woman in? He says, okay. So he unblindfolds him and, he, and uh, says, which hut is the man in, which hut is the woman in? Turns out the man's in the right and the woman's in the left. And the villager is very excited. And the villager says, you see, your question changed where they are. So the, the scientist says, no, no, no. You put them in different huts this time. So he says, well, let's, let's try that again. So he blindfolds him and says, which hut is the man in and which hut is the woman in? And he opens up the blindfold and lo and behold, the man's in the left and the woman's in the right. So the, the scientist is not very impressed now. He says, look, I, you know, I really got to go. It's, you know, I, I think I've wasted my money getting here. And the man says, the, man, the villager says, he says, well, you know, how about we do one last stage of the, of the experiment? He says, okay. So he blindfolds him and, and takes the blindfold off afterwards and says, now you choose which question. He says, okay. He says, well, which hut are they in? So he opens up the door on the right and they're in the one on the right. They're not in the one on the left. He says, you see? Good question. Because you asked that question, they were together. He says, he says no, that was, that was just very good luck. So he says, well, let's try that again. He says, blindfold me blindfold you again. He says, now ask the question. He says, well, which hut is here? So I open up the door, and he's in one hut, and she's in the other hut. He says, well, that was also very good luck. And now the, now the scientist starts getting a little puzzled. And so they keep blindfolding him, and each time he opens up his, the blindfold, he asks a different question, and whichever question he asks distributes them or congregates them in one area, depending on what he asks. And now the scientist is very confused. And the villager says, you see, in the end of the day, your question caused them to be in the places that you asked. And the, and the physicist leaves very, very confused. You see, this, is an, this example over here, we see the breakdown of logic over here. This example over here is, we'll call it a, a macro scale of what occurs at the level of a quantum <coughs> enigma. This doesn't occur with bodies that big, which is part of the question of quantum physics. But we go, it actually is, we are able to increase the size of this displayable experiment greater and greater today. Let's go back historically, just for, for a moment. We could start earlier, but I'd like to start per, uh, at the time of Newton, because the, the history is very, very fascinating as to the development of science, and it should give us a little room for humility as human beings as to how we understand concepts in the world around us. Let's start at the very beginning with, the, with Newton. So at the, just, to, just to put things in perspective, at the end of the 19th century, 1894, this is Lord Kelvin, one of the, one of the extraordinary physicists of the time, a quote from him who said, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. And in fact, people were being discouraged from becoming physicists at the turn of the 20th century because there had been an, uh, we had essentially discovered all that needed to have been discovered. Well, well, as we, as we stand a century and 20 years later, there is certainly a lot which has been discovered in between. The humility which, which we need to have. So here's one example of how complex and how much humanity had to learn. And let's start with the problem of light. This is, this is one of the, the complexities. What is light? 
Okay, how do you define light? So Newton, who was one of the individuals who really changed the world of physics around him, with his, uh, his laws of physics, or universal laws of physics, and uh, his questioning mind, where he based, his, the, he based the, the observations he made on experimental data, not just uh, beliefs, which was up till now very much predominant in this Aristotelian, medieval way of looking at things, which was adopted up to basically the times of Galileo, Newton transformed the world in the way he, he, he produced his universal laws of motion. The one thing which was interesting about Newton is he was a little conflicted, but in the end of the day, he actually had what was called the corpuscular theory of light, which means that he believed that light was small particles which were being emitted from he called shiny surfaces, because it followed the same laws as anything which would be a physical entity. It traveled in straight lines, it rebounded off surfaces, it, had, it followed all the laws that a regular, regular particles would follow. The reason why he was against the notion, or he was troubled by the notion of light being a wavelength, of being a wave, is because a wave has to travel through a medium. Right? So let's say when, we, when you're plucking a guitar string and you hear the sound wave, that, that, that what happens is, is that there is a wave which is created between the nodes of the guitar string, which now, which now moves the air, which therefore travels through our ears, and, that, which, that, that, and the air which is moving goes into our, into our, ear, into our ear, which removes the, the inner, inner ear hairs, and that's how we feel, we feel and, uh, and understand sound. But everything which is a wave actually moves through some medium. And the problem is that light travels through space. And in space, there's no medium. There's, there's nothing that can be shaken or waved. So how does light travel through space if it's a wavelength? That must be, it's actually not a wavelength, it's a particle. It's something which is traveling. That's what Newton understood. And in fact, he, he was debated, he was conflicted about this, but this is what he ended up saying. And for a hundred years, in fact, people adopted this way of looking at light until the arrival of a person by the name of Thomas Young. Thomas, yeah, um, Thomas Young, I put the biographies of each of these individuals along the way. So he was in the, lived in the 1700s towards the beginning of the 19th century and he conducted an experiment which turned everything on its head. He conducted an experiment which was called the interference experiment. So what he did was he took a pane of glass which is covered with soot and he, and, he, and, he, and he took his finger and he carved out two lines. So now you have a black screen with two slits in it. And if you shine light through that screen, now what happens on the other end is very interesting. How does the light express itself as it shines through a, um, a split, uh, a, split a, a double slit screen? So as you can see in the, in the diagram, what ends up happening is that you have bars of light and bars of darkness. Now the problem is, is that if light were to be a particle, if light is a, a bunch of particles being emitted, then that, ex that, that result doesn't follow. That result only follows if light actually is a wave. Because what happens is, how does this work? If you have a wave, basically put, if you see the second diagram on the right, there's a wave being emitted, like if you imagine dropping a stone in water and you see the ripples moving along, those are waves which are being emitted in water. Similarly in air, or in the, in the medium which, through which light is traveling. So it hits the splits, and now two sets of waves are being emitted, right? From each of those, each of those holes. And what happens is, is as the peaks and the troughs of the different waves meet each other, some of them cancel each other out and there's dark, 
and some of them, when the troughs hit the troughs, and the peaks hit the, hit, the, hit the peaks, when the peaks hit the peaks, it becomes lighter. So you get bars of light as the patterns of the two sets of waves intercept each other. That makes sense, and that's exactly what would happen if light were to be a wave, not a particle. And what happened was, is after this interference experiment was performed, and we're talking at the beginning of the 19th century over here, what happened was the, the, the English school of thought obviously defended Newton's philosophy, because Newton was, of course, in England, and the French school of, phys uh, um, of physics adopted Young's perspective until many more interference experiments were conducted and it became clearly obvious that light was in fact a wave. And then the predominant view in the world became that light was a wave, unlike the corpuscular view of light of, uh, of Newton. Fantastic. This just goes to show you the humility. Let's go a little, a little step further. 19... Okay, before we get, before we get to, to uh, um, Einstein, we, 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 we meet a man called Max Planck. Max Planck, um, and notice, by the way, just the nationalities of all these people. He is, he is, of course, from Germany. And what he did was he, he actually co he conducted a very interesting... He was dealing with a very interesting problem. The problem was, was called the um, ultraviolet problem. And that is the following. Is that when, when, he, when you heat up, let's say, a metal, and the, the, the higher you heat the metal, the more that the electrons are vibrating in that metal, and therefore the more light they emit. And the higher the, the, the higher the temperature, the more they vibrate. And therefore, at a certain point, they turn different shades of light till the point that they become what we see as blue, which is supposed to be actually the ultraviolet, which you can't see because our eyes cannot pick that up, because that's the hottest and that's the most vibration that's actually being emitted. The problem is, is the following, is that according to classical physics, what should happen is, is that the more you heat it, the more the intensity of the vibration of the electrons should be. So it should go up. Uh, it should go up, as you see on the, in the diagram. Classical theory should be that the, the intensity should increase exponentially. However, the truth is the opposite, is that at a certain point, at ultra-red, what happens is it actually drops off. The intensity, as, even though you're adding heat, the intensity with which, are, uh, which, with which the electrons vibrate actually diminishes. Nobody could explain it. So he dealt with this issue. He tried to understand it. He couldn't work it out. Couldn't work it out at all, so he worked backwards. So he said, let's take a red-hot poker and let, let me watch it now lose its energy and, and observe what's going on. And he made an argument that, in fact, that electrons vibrate at a certain point and then, mysteriously, for no reason whatsoever, release an amount of energy, which he called a quanta. They release packets of energy. So it vibrates very intensely and it suddenly disappears. It's like, it's like steps. They suddenly lose energy immediately, which forms the, 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 the downward arc of the of the diagram, which means to say that at a certain point, the electrons are no longer vibrating more vigorously, they're actually losing energy. They're emitting it in the form of light. That's what Max Planck said. He was a very well-respected physicist, and people were so confused by what he said, and they, but they couldn't argue with him because he was such a respected physicist, so they basically ignored him, because it was, it was much easier to ignore him than to have to deal with the very unusual um, theory that he was professing. Until the days of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein of course, as we know, was, did not start off his days as a glorious physicist. He worked in a patent agency as not even a very high-level patent officer. And uh, in 1905, he wrote four papers. The most famous of those papers we know to be, of course, the theory of relativity, right? However, he wrote other papers. And in amongst them, he wrote another paper which deals with light. And he argued, coming full circle round, that in fact maybe light, like Planck had suggested, also works in the same way. Maybe light, in fact, is packets of energy, what he called photons, which means that light is a group of energy which is being emitted, and it goes, it's, it's actually an entity rather than a wave itself. 
and is now emitting energy. What was his proof? His proof was called, was called the photoelectric effect. Photoelectric effect was an experiment done where if you shine light on a particular substance, it can be measured that electrons shoot off from that substance. Now that doesn't work if it's just a wavelength. If light is simply a wave, it should bounce off. It shouldn't affect the electrons inside. What Einstein argued is, is that because light is actually photons, packets of energy, what that means to say is that when it hits there, the energy just charges, transfers to the electrons, which is what causes the electrons to shoot off, some, uh, some of the electrons to shoot off. This is what uh, um, Einstein had, uh, had argued. Einstein, once again, was uh, contravening the natural science of the time, because everybody at this point in time had agreed with Thomas Young's argument that light was, in fact, a wave and not a particle, and therefore Einstein remained a man apart for the next 17 years. Einstein, oh no, actually I apologize, yeah, almost 18 to, um, 17 to 18 years, Einstein's, this theory of Einstein was ignored in most physics. In fact, in 1922, when he received the Nobel Pri uh, Physics Prize for his, his work on the photoelectric effect, they didn't even mention the word photon in the Nobel Prize because people were too embarrassed to, dis to, to talk about this photon which, um, which um, Einstein had been talking about. However, 1923 was a very important year for this because there was a number of discoveries which actually put Einstein back on the map in this respect. So just, just, to, just to reverse to what, what's going on over here, there's been a movement between from corpuscular idea of how light works as particles, which Newton has suggested, back to the interference experiment as a wave, and now the idea that light actually moves in packets of energy, those actually groupings of energy, which is a way that, that um, Einstein has described it, based on Planck's experimentation. So here we have three very interesting um, um, physicists around the early 1920s who developed results which are actually remarkably helpful to us. The first is a person by the name of Niels Bohr, very instrumental, who's a, um, a Danish um, physicist, who, uh, who is dealing with what's called the stability problem. Okay, so again, we, uh, folks, we, the, the specific details aren't as important, and this is very much a survey <coughs> as to the, the bigger picture of what's going on over here, because I, I was a physics major, um, but I don't think everybody else um, in, in necessarily has to be one to, to appreciate the, what, what, what's going on over here. Um, and that is, is, that, um, um, is that he was dealing with what's called the stability problem, which is they were trying to understand how an atom, the structure of an atom. So we have the idea that there's a nucleus. In the nucleus, there's protons and neutrons. And, and orbiting it are levels of electrons. And part of the stability problem was the following, is if you viewed it as a planetary model, which means that similarly, like the sun is in the center and you have planets orbiting, that's the way that an electron and an electron orbits the nucleus of an atom, then you have a little bit of a problem because an, an a, a electron is negatively charged, which means to say that it should therefore increase its speed and intensity as it continues to as it continues to revolve in its orbit. And at a certain point should not at a certain point, very, very fast should automatically spiral in and, and hit the proton, the, the proton, the nucleus of that atom and, and, and the, the atom should be destroyed, which isn't what happens. But how does it work? That was what he was dealing with. And he realized something very interesting. He realized that instead of arguing with Planck, remember Planck was the, the individual who said that, in fact, electrons emit energy in quantum, in these little packets of energy. He, he, instead of arguing to try to find out how does Planck work, how do you derive Planck's content, constant, which is H, um, in, in terms of how much the energy loses. If you accept Planck's theory, you can understand that, in fact, electrons don't just move in a, particular, in, a, in a particular continuous fashion. They jump. 
they jump from place to place and they emit energy at certain, um, at certain stages. Which means to say that there's not going to be an, a continued intensity and it's going to implode like you see that the en energy of a hot substance doesn't suddenly keep going up exponentially. It loses intensity after a certain point. Similarly with the, the electrons, the electrons are not intensely going faster and faster and faster. There's a certain balance of energy which is being created in terms of the, in the, in an atom. In fact, he was able to use his theory to predict what would happen when you excite atoms. So, what light they turn. And he was correct to the 10,000th part. So, he, his, his theory of using Planck's theory of understanding the internal workings of an atom actually yielded a very interesting, interesting result. Um, why this is important is because it was around this time that we, have, we meet a scientist in America, American physicist called Arthur Compton, on the top of the next page, on page um, who, who suggested that in fact there is what's called the Compton effect, which is that if you send a photon of light, if you send some light onto an electron itself, the wavelength of that light changes, which now proves exactly what Einstein had said, which means to say that light, light as well, if the wavelength of that, of that X-ray photon is going to change, it means to say that it is emitting energy into that electron, like, like Einstein had suggested in the opposite direction, which corroborates the theory of Einstein that it's not necessarily only a wavelength if it's losing energy. Um, <coughs> and it is around this time as well, just, these are just, just um, nodes on the historical calendar, that it became clear that Einstein's idea of, where, of light not being a wave, but being packets of energy, being a photon, in fact, being, became much clearer to the world in 1923. At the same time, that means to say, this is, a, this is remarkable, that means to say the following. That means that depending on the experiment that was conducted with light, it yielded different results. So let's come back to our hat story for a moment here. If you do an interference experiment, if you do a Thomas Young experiment where you shine light through two slits, you get an interference experiment which, which indicates that light in fact is a wave because it gives you bars of light. If you do a photoelectric experiment with light, then it shows you that light is not a wave. It's a particle of sorts. Now, how does that work? Meaning, depending on what you chose to do with light, yielded different results. Depending on what question you asked, yielded different results as to where the couple are. Are they separate or are they together? Let's take this a little, a little further as we get into the complexities of this. Um, there was a, an individual called Louis de Broguil, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, who took it one step further. He was actually of arist aristocratic blood, um, even though he was in the Republic of France, he was uh, of arist an aristocratic line, and he went into f uh, physics, and as a graduate student, he made the following observation. If it's true that light can be shown to be either a particle or a wave, what about matter? What about regular atoms and electrons? What about them? We know them to be particles. Could they also be waves? And he proved, he set up a theory, which indicated that in fact, Partic uh, matter itself, atoms and electrons, not only have the properties of an actual particle, a physical entity, but also the pro properties of waves, depending on what experiment you use with them as well. Which means that electrons don't just operate as, as an entity which orbit, they actually move in a wavelength in their orbit. And when he actually presented his, his, uh, his findings to his graduate advisor, he was told that this was preposterous. And it was re re rejected, but because he, were, he, were, he came from royal blood, he wasn't happy with his rejection. So he went to find the greatest physicist of the era, Albert Einstein, to present his findings. And, and in fact, Al um, Einstein 
Einstein said, <coughs> said of him that he had lifted the veil of God in the world when he understood this. That not only is light, does light have a duality depending on how you experiment with it, actual physical matter itself has two properties depending on how you experiment with it. So now, this, this is kind of where we left in the early 20s until we come to an individual who is perhaps more well-known. His name is Erwin Schrödinger. So Erwin Schrödinger was, of course, an Austrian physicist. He actually fled the Nazis. He wasn't Jewish. He fled the Nazis and was fell in their disfavor. But he, had a, he, he observed this for a long time and came up with the following theory. This, this took, a, it took him a long time to get to, but he suggested the following. He suggested that maybe every substance which is unobserved, whether it be an atom, an electron, light, actually has what's called a wave, what is called a wave function. Which means to say it isn't in one particular area. It's over a it, it can be found at any place within a particular spectrum or area. So therefore, if you take an electron, an atom, which is unobserved, there is what's called its wave function, which means it can be anywhere in that area until observation. Once you observe where it is, the entire wave function <coughs> collapses because you found out where it is. So now, let's take this a little further. That, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds maybe perhaps obvious. It isn't so obvious. He went to the, he, he went to the, following, the, the, to the following lengths. And this is where, where things get a little murky. So what happens if, if the following? Well, let's say you take... You produce an atom that has a wave function, so we don't know exactly where the, where the atom is. Okay, so we take a, um, a, even an electron, which has a wave function, and we, we, we capture it in a, in, a, uh, in a particular wave function. So it could be anywhere in a particular area. And now we split that wave function. So let's say we, we send that wave function, uh, function through a mirror, and we divide that wave function up into two boxes. Great? Great? So now we have two boxes with this wave function, which means where is the atom? Well, it's anywhere, any, anywhere in those two boxes, because it could be anywhere. There's one atom, but its wave function is split over two places. So it could be anywhere, right? It could be in one box, it could be in the other box. It really is at this point in time in both, essentially. We don't know where, because it's two areas. Okay? This is what's called the, the, uh, the twin box experiment, you can see on the bottom of page 5. Okay? So you have a wave, a, a wave function which is, in, uh, which is going past a mirror, a one-way mirror, so some of it goes through, some of it is reflected upwards, and you have two boxes, and it's trapped... You, let's say trapped between two mirrors in two boxes now is the wave function of this atom. So this, this particular atom, this physical entity now, is, in t is essentially in two places at once. Okay? So we don't know where it is. But you're going to say to us, well, it has to only be in one of them, right? Meaning at the end of the day. So here's, here's, here's what we do. What if we, ta if we take a screen, a sensitive screen, which we can now track the arrival of, um, of atoms in a particular pattern, and we open up both boxes, boxes at the same time. What pattern will it yield? So here's what here, here's the, here, the answer would be, is what's called an interference pattern. Because, in the end of the day, interestingly enough, if you open up both at the time, it's like the split, the two-slit experiment, where light's being shone between two, between two slits. And the two, apparently the two parts of that atom are interacting with each other as waves, and therefore yielding what's called an interference experiment. We'll see bars of where the atoms hit the screen. Only in certain bars and not in other, other bars, which means that the part of the atom in the one box and the part of the atom in the other box, even though it's one atom, actually know where each other are, right? They know where each other are so that when they release at the same time, they interact with each other. There's something connecting the two of them. However, what happens if you do this? What happens if you open up one of the boxes? Okay, so now you're discovering where the atom was or not. So the atom either leaves or doesn't leave because it was in that box or wasn't. So let's say the atom does leave. You open up one box. 
and the atom hits the screen, you hear a plink, it, it, it hits the screen, there's a mark on the screen now. And now you open up the other box, of course, is there going to be a plink? No. no, because the atom wasn't in that box, right? You just uh, discovered that. If you do that, let's say you, you do that numerous, numerous times, and you've got many, many boxes set up in such a way, if you open them both up together, what patterns are going to yield? Interference. If you open up one by one, you're going to have sporadic spread of atoms. There's no interference. Which means that the question you asked depend, actually now dictated what's going to happen in the end. Whether it acted like a particle or whether it acted like a wave, depending on how you asked the question. Do you understand what's going on over here? This is over here, going back to the two houses. This is where we start entering into the grounds of what's called a quantum enigma. Which means to say that there's a duality in every particle, whether it's a po every atom, every electron, every photon, whether it is a wave, or whether it's a particle. And depending on how you choose to experiment on it, in the same experiment, you'll, get, you'll yield different results. That's remarkable, and they're not complementary results. Particle and wave cannot coexist. Which is what led Schrodinger to say, so some people said, well, that only exists on a micro level. How, you know, so, so Schrodinger set up a thought experiment, which is, which is, of course, the famous cat. So he said, let's say you take a wave function of a particular, let's say, electron, and you say, you allow it, you open the box, and it could either be a wave or a particle. If it's a particle, it's going to now, uh, it's now going to set off a Geiger counter, which, which um, 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 accepts certain or you can choose, it can choose to accept different particles which are coming in. If it clicks, it breaks a vial of, 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 of um, let's say, um, acid, which will therefore kill a cat in the box, which means that it could, until you've opened the box, you don't know if the Geiger counter has clicked, you don't know if the cat has been killed, which means to say up to the point that you open up the box, until the cat is actually, actually um, observed, the cat is the cat is alive and dead at the same time. Which means to say, what he's done is essentially he's just sort of, he's sort of made it a macro problem. As opposed to saying that the atom is both a wave and a particle, he's saying the cat is both dead and alive physically at the same time. Until observed. Which is, which is the, 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 the Schrodinger's thought experiment to expand the problem that we have at hand. One, one of my favorite cartoons is the, the one that deals with Schrodinger's dog, actually. Um, which is the dog suggesting to Erwin to put the cat in the box. Um, but nonetheless, the experiment hasn't, um, hasn't been, hasn't been uh, uh, performed because it wouldn't make a difference in the end of the day because until observation, until observation, you would, it, the, the result is the same, so it wouldn't make a difference. Can you get in there to observe while it's happening? You can't because that observation will therefore interfere with the experiment. Because remember, observation is either you open up one box and you see the result on the screen, the screen is the observer, right? Or you see it at the same time, so it's, it's, you're not going to be able to be observing it while it's going on because you're already <coughs> interfering with the experiment. Which is why doing the experiment won't help, never besides the fact that Peter will get involved. <laughs> so, here we go on the level of physics. Now, interpretation, this is, just, this is just getting to the historical point to appreciate this. There's a lot more, and what is most fascinating is actually interpretations. We're not going to spend time <coughs> doing interpretations over here. The Copenhagen, extreme Copenhagen, EPR, when you get into Bell's theorem, what this means. How does consciousness, how does, how does observation actually relate to the experiment you've done. I like to think about it from the perspective of the Torah. So having, having put this in, in motion, and if up to this point in time it sounded a little hazy, let's, let's reverse into Torah concepts, and I think we'll see that in fact, even though it took science a long, long time to reach this idea, that in fact logic, binary logic, doesn't operate, 
In Torah thought, this is actually a very, a very uh, comfortable concept. Just, uh, just so we should be aware, I, this is actually very important, is most of us think, oh, well, you know, quantum physics, um, it's, you know, it's pretty much out there, it's not really, uh, not really so relevant. Um, just so you should realize that um, a, about a third of our, our economy rests on quantum physics. Okay, so, so computer chips are built based on for quantum physics, um, MRIs, lasers, all based on quantum, th uh, quantum theory. Okay, so a lot of people spend a lot of time actually utilizing the duality of, um, of, of the elements rather than thinking about them. There's not as much time given to the thought of the enigma behind it, but most of, most of the things we see around us are in fact using um, quantum theory. So now let, let, let's reverse into Torah for a second to appreciate this now. Let, let's learn a Mishnah. Once again, the, oh, actually we'll start with the Gomorrah. The Gomorrah in fact is to, uh, is to be found 2,000 years ago. So well before we started experimenting with light. Let's try to appreciate these concepts um, from their perspective now with a historical perspective. The Gomorrah tells us the following. In source one, um, on page six. Amar Yisak, Eina bracha metsuya, ela bedavara hasamu Bracha, blessing, Hashem's blessing can only be found in something which is hidden from the eye. Shenemar Yisava Hashem itchoyasa bracha ba'asamecha Hashem will place bracha to, uh, to you on your storehouses. How's the Pasuk supporting the idea that the Gemara just suggested? What's the house's Pasuk supporting that notion? Where's bracha found? The storehouses, meaning unobserved. Okay? Meaning that you're, it's not in front of you. Bracha can only be found in a place where the eye does not control it. A person is going to measure their granary. So remember, you're a farmer. It's come the end of the season now. You want to see what the produce of the year. What was the yield? Uh, a person should, uh, um, uh, um, Hashem, please send bracha in the work of your hand, our hands. Hischil lamud, as he starts to measure, he says, bracha um, He gives a blessing to Hashem that Hashem sent bracha to this kri, um, to this pile. We're going to get into that in a second, the last part of this Gemara. Which means to say a very interesting concept. And that is, is that bracha, the idea of bracha, of course, is the letter base. It starts with the letter base. Base, of course, is the basic idea of, of multiplicity. Right? Where Hashem spreads forth rather than oneness. Base is where it spreads into two. Where there's the idea of whether there can be more than there is or there more, that meets the eye. The idea of what's, what's the root of the word bracha is? Is? There's, there's different ways of looking at this. One is berech, which is the knee. Another one is also brecha, which is a pool. Why, 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 how would bracha be connected to brecha, which is a, which is a pool or a spring? What was that? It springs from nowhere. So it, it, it's the source, meaning when you go down and you look at the rivers over here, if you track them back to the mountains, there's a brecha. That's, that's the, the source of where it comes from. When we're asking for the bracha over here, we're saying to Hashem, please allow your, the flow of your energy to be allowed to be channeled fully into the items that I worked on so that they are now multiply, now that there's more of them. But the Gemara is telling us that you can only request that before you saw it. Why? So this is the Ein Yaakov, Rav Yaakov Ibn Khabib. The idea is, is that when you look at something, when you observe something, you peg it. 
It's stuck there. Hashem's not going to now interfere with it because you've observed it. You've essentially asked the question. Once you've asked the question, you've defined it. Once you've defined it, you don't leave Hashem the space to affect it. You don't leave Hashem the space to multiply it because He can do that and He will do that. But only when you're on the way to measure it. Once you've measured it, you've got it. You see what's happening over here? Before you looked at it, what was it? Says the Gemara. Well, it wasn't. It, it had a wave function of sorts. Meaning it could be a lot of things. There's a lot of potential there before observation. When you say, when you ask the bracha Hashem, mashpir your shefa, take your bracha and push it through this channel, there's still space to do that because it is unobserved up to this point. Observe it, you peg it. In fact, this is, this is brought lahalocha, interestingly enough. Another example of, of just this, this way that Hashem interacts with the world. Just a, a, a classic example in, in Melachim, where Elisha is dealing with one of, there's a number of stories with Elisha and a woman. So there's one story with a woman who has many creditors. And she is, she's a widow, and she doesn't know what to do. She comes to Elisha, what does he do? He tells her, fill your house with vessels, or with vessels, borrow vessels and vessels and vessels from your, your neighbors, pots, pans, jugs, pitchers, whatever you can get. And she fills up her house, and he's, she only has one pot of, of oil. So, she says, so he says to her, close all the windows and the doors, and pour the oil into those pots. So she pours, and she carries on pouring, and she carries on pouring, and she carries on pouring. Meaning to say that what's happening over here is, is that she's almost created, it's almost like Elisha has created for her an unobserved area. Sort of a space where, which is beyond observation, which she's allowed privy into. And as long as there's a basis for the bracha, which is the beginning oil that she has, Hashem can expand and that, that through the bracha as long as she pours, as long as there's space for her. Another example, the, the, the Ramban talks about the teva. Now, folks, if you do the physical measurements of the teva, you'll come to the conclusive, um, um, the conclusive bottom line that it is, there is no possible way that Noah could have fit the entire Bronx Zoo into it. Okay? Uh, there, and the Bronx Zoo does not include everything either. There just simply is no way. So the Ramban says, of course, because there was a miracle that Hashem made it the physical actually was able to encompass more than it could necessarily, which exists in a number of places on earth. Um, that's very interesting. So how does, how, how does that work? So the Ramban then asks the question. So therefore, you know what he should do? Hashem should tell him to make a matchbox. Right? If in the end of the day, God operates right, beyond the physical, then what's the whole... Cedar wood? It took him 120 years. You know, like, make it easier for him. Tell him to make a little hut, a little shack. He walks into it, put the ele- just make the entrance big enough for elephants, and then everything walks into there, and it's like Mary Poppins' bag. Boom! Right? <laughs> So it says the Ramban, no, God has to operate within the confines of observable reality. Hashem allows bracha to be found, but it has to be rationally possible for the bracha to have existed there observably. So God, of course, gives space within the physical to expand and contract. But it needs to be that there's a basis, there's a platform, which is logical. Understand? Observably, it could, potentially. We don't know, we haven't measured. But then on a, le- on a certain level, there's an expansion and contraction beyond the observ- observability. This is important, by the way, just in terms of like, you know, it, it is important to budget. And it's very important to make sure everything adds up and we know we're going somewhere and we're putting away and so on. There's also a certain time where it's also important not to always, not to, you know, to be refreshing one's, um, one's bank account app every two minutes because you're not really leaving so much space. You know, so you're not, you're not really leaving the space for Hashem to give that bracha because you're pegging it like this Gomorrah is saying over here, based on mission brothers. Let's go, let's go one step further. 
The, nec the next dimension where, where this applies is the mirror opposite of this concept. The mirror opposite of this concept is what's called Tfilas Shav, where we saw the Gomorrah actually, actually suggested that if a person is, has already measured their granary and then says that they ask Hashem for there to be great multiplicitous brachas, then it's what's called Tfilas Shav, which means an a in vain prayer. The Gomorrah gives other examples. It's the mission in brachas on, in Source 3. Atzoyek L'Sha'avar, a person who cries uh, about the past, Harezet Tfilas Shav. It's an in vain prayer. Examples. Um, let's say a family is Beshat expecting. And he says concerning his wife, He says, let, let it be a male child. Well, I'm afraid it's a little too late right now. Okay, it's, that, that's the, it, it's already been decided. Let's say a person's walking past the city in Rachmanin, so here is a whole a, a calamity going on inside. Right? And he says, I hope that that, that, that calling and that, that, um, that chaos is not coming from my house. Because it's happened already. It's something which is Now, this is interesting. So, how, how does this operate over here? So, when I say Mark, so, so the, the, in understanding this, the Ramam says, is that we can only pray on future things. When things can still unfold, there's still space for them to unfold. If you want to take it one, even one step deep, uh, deeper, I, I was saw in a sefer last night called the, called the Eshel Avram, Avram David of Buchach. He says the most interesting thing on this, as it appears la in Simon Reish Lamed in Shulchan Aruch. He says, think about this for a moment. The Gomorrah asks on this mission and says, is there no space for Rachamim? Meaning, at the end of the day, don't we believe that Tefillah changes things? Right? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be able to, like, you hear, the, you, you see an ambulance going past. He's saying, no, no, it's done. It's done, the Mishnah said. It's finished. Isn't there space for Rachamim? The Gemara says, look at an example in terms, of, in terms of the birth. By Leah, what happens? Leah was pregnant. She prayed that it should be a girl to enable Rachel to have at least two children like the maidservants who are boys, who are Shvatim. Look what she did. She prayed on something to change the gender of her child, which is exactly the case of the Mishnah. The Gemara gives two options. One option is that it was early on in the pregnancy, where this was not yet... A, um, we're not yet decided. The Gemara's other answer is, you don't bring answers from my senesim. That was a nace, which means, the Teva was one particular way, it was pegged, it was observed. But what did she do? She actually diverted the course of nature through Attilas. That's how powerful Attilas were. Which seems to be a negative thing. We don't like to ask for nisim in general. The Gemara seems to view asking for a nisim as a negative thing to have to ask from God. It takes a lot of schus. There's a lot of problems with asking for a nace. Says the Eshel Avram, if you think about it from the following perspective, if there, is, if there is a call of distress and it's coming from a particular area and you say, I hope it's not from my house, what has happened already is that it has befallen a particular house. For you to change it, not only are you uprooting what has already been observed, the question already asked where that happened, but you're also now transferring it to someone else. You understand? You're now transferring... In terms of the mountain of Shamas that are coming down to the world, you're now a fixed quota has happened and you're asking God to change it. That's very, very hard. It's been observed. Once it's been observed, it's a Tfilas Shav. Mark, there was a thought. I think that what you just said now may answer it, but the, the two Gemaras seem to me to contradict each other because the fact that you're walking into your storehouse, what, what is there already is there. 
So if you're about to count it, it says it's not a tefillah shot. Right, but it sounds like when you're starting. The reality is they are already. Just no different than when you walk into the, in your town, the reality is they're already. Correct, but it hasn't been numbered yet. Meaning, I'm starting to now, now, now I'm starting to count the amount of bales. I'm starting to measure the amount of grain. Up to the point that I've actually measured it, it hasn't yet been pegged observably. Right, That's so if you're, you're going into your tent, you haven't observed your house. Somebody else has. That's the point. Yeah, but how about pregnancy? Hmm? What pregnancy was that? has not been observed. What was that? Once the child is... Is there a, the pregnancy oh, so that's a very good question. Not that's yet. a very good question about it observability. Has, of course oh. it has. It's that's before the Uber. Was it, that, so if you have seen she's pregnant, then it's already observed. So first of all, there are all those people in the town who say it's absolutely a boy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so besides all those people, um, before the times of, um, of, uh, of sonograms, I'm not sure. That's a very good question about the about the pregnancy. I'm not 100 percent sure on that in particular area. So I, I think so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So there's an uncertainty principle, uncertainty there which allows you that. Yes. Yeah, so there's yes, even and depending on how late it is again as well, also depends on. So I, I'm, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure. Apparently, the Gemara views that as observed already, meaning or fixed enough, which is fascinating. The, by the by, the crisis in the town. That's clear because there are people okay. there. And you're essentially asking God to uproot what occurred, right? You have a worker, he saw what's in your store But he didn't measure it, sir. He didn't measure it yet. You're right. He, he has limited it, certainly, but he hasn't. That's why there's two stages of asking bracha, right? There's on the way there, and there's measuring it, right? So one of them could be affected already, yeah. There's a whale. There's a whale. Even if well, well, there is formed, males can form into females, females can form, form in early Correct. There, are, there, there, there is a possibility, which is what the Gemara says. The Gemara says within 40 days. Right, but the Gemara even says originally at, for within 40 days. Let me, if it's all right to be, I just want to, hold, I want to just move through to two more concepts because we're already running a little late, and then we're going to, and we're going to uh, take it. I'm going to, we're a little late, so if anybody needs to leave, but I just want to make, just make sure to follow through into two separate realms. Um, and that is, is what, uh, a sheer, a sheer discussion we followed, we, we came across many, many months ago where we talked about Ayn Hara. So how does Ayn Hara work? We, we discussed many different models of how Ayn Hara works. <coughs> and one of the ideas which is um, suggested by Rabbeinu Yona, already we're, uh, you know, we're about 700 years ago, he says, Rabbi Yeshua Amir Ayn Hara, which is talked about in Pirkei Awas, there's many examples of Ayn Hara, you shouldn't stand by people's fields and observe their fields, right? That's, uh, the Gemara talks about this. Rav says that when he went to cemetery, 99% of the people died untimely because of Ayn Hara. So how does it really operate? He says, uh, So a person calls bad to himself every time he thinks about his friend and how well his friend is doing and how um, uh, perceivably different he is doing. And it affects the other person like the Chachmei Ateva says. Meaning a person looking at somebody else, like the scientists tell us, can affect another person's property. What? You're just looking at his property in the end of the day. Well, how are you affecting his property? Says, says the Chazoinish, in trying to understand this, he says the, uh, on the top of the next page, it's in Masechus He quotes a case where the Rabbonin looked at this, in numerous cases in the Gemara where the Rabbonin looked at a particular person, and upon looking at them, the person dies. He says, It is part of the... Um, the basic foundations of creation. He says it is known that one of the foundations of creation is that one's, one's perception, one's observation can in fact hurt and destroy things around them. Now, what's he talking about over here? He says, 
He goes through many numerous examples. What that means to say is that the Chazanish understands that observing itself, that looking consciousness isn't simply as we, uh, as we, as we think of it up till now, which is there's, there is reality and there's observable reality. Reality is independent of the observation. That's the general way we look at classical physics. And it's happened or it hasn't happened. The tree fell whether you heard it or you didn't hear it. However, in the world realm of quantum physics, observation consciousness is clearly tied in to what actually happens. Therefore, says the Chazonesh, Ein Hora is when you're actually looking and the negative thoughts you're having actually do impact it. Now, on a most basic level, it could be that your impact is you're pegging it. Do you understand? Meaning you're looking at it and you're limiting the bracha that could be now exposed to another person because you've got a very tsar eye on another person. But it could actually be even more than that. He's saying that there is some damage caused by observation which is perhaps even a further extension. How does this work? Well, how does, how does quantum physics work? How, how is it possible that consciousness actually interfaces with reality? It does. Another example. This, is, by the way, is what the Maharsha says, is why it is that a... Um, this is why the Maharsha says a person should only say a bracha, bless a bracha on his field before he sees it, because when it's seen, it's limited by an horror, which is, ties the two in together exactly the same. Let's move into one last dimension, which is completely different. This is a very fascinating dimension, and then the Gemara tells us in numerous places a very interesting concept. Source 7. The Gemara says, There were three, uh, for three years they, they, uh, disagreed. In the particular sugya there, um, one school of thought went like one way, one school of thought went the other way. A divine voice was emitted, which says, both of them are the words of the living God, but Allah is like Basil. Um, so what does that mean? You're like, <laughs> how can it be? How, how can it possibly be both? Another example, Gemara Chagiga, Dakimul Amabeis talks about Bale Asufos, who are these Bale Asufos, these people who are gather, uh, who live as part of gatherings. These are these are who live together and are involved in Torah. There's groups, there's always arguments about what is the status or what's in front of them. So you're going to say, look, I don't have tafas. I don't have time to everything. Every concept I ask about is a machlokas. How can I possibly get to truth? So the so the Talmud Leimar, Kulonu Nosnu Echa. The end of that pasuk of Baalei Asufos is that everyone was, everything was given from one shepherd. God gave them. Is, which means to say that all the arguments they're having are all coming from god. one god there's different uh, differences of opinion but they're all coming from one god now how does that work because at the end of the day if if, if there's a machlok as, as to is this tome or is this tahor it can't be both tome or tahor how, you can't and you can't tell me that they're both true because normatively on a, on a practical level i'm going to either be able to eat that or not eat that i'm either going to be able to keep that in my house or not keep that in my house there, there is one truth now you're telling me that they all come from God? How does, it, how does it work with logic? So there's many <coughs> different approaches given. One approach is given. Rav Moshe Feinstein has his introduction to Igros Moshe. says, no, no, you know what it is? Is that sometimes falseness, falsehood, or incorrectness actually accentuates the truth more. Which means to say, let's say it's, it's like the null hypothesis. In order to really appreciate the truth, you need to have a null hypothesis which is incorrect to show you that the truth is really the actual, the real McCoy. So therefore, what does Eluv Eluv Divrelo Kim Chaim mean? It doesn't mean to say everybody's right. It means to say that the argument necessary to get to the truth, even the false arguments, 
are necessary to appreciate the true arguments. So doesn't mean to say they're true in the ends, they're true in the means because they're important in the means of getting to the real truth, which is only one direction. That's why that's one direction which is uh, which is approached. Other people, other people like the Marashal say, you know what it is? It means to say it doesn't mean to say that there, there's there's multiple truths. It means to say that really there is one truth, but everybody's trying to get to the truth. Therefore, means to say we're crediting them on the process, the effort of trying to get there. It's not, of course, there's only one truth. It's, it is Tahor, it is Tameh. There simply is no other way around it, says the Marashal. But nonetheless, we credit, the, we credit the, the, the process of trying to get to truth as Those are more classical explanations. However, now we come to the quantum physics model. And this is the approach, the, the, the Ravdessa talks about this, the Ale Shur talks about this, the Marel, if you read carefully, actually talks about this in the following. So, the example is given in the following. The Gomorrah, the Gomorrah talks about in Gittin, uh, a particular case. There's, a, there's a, uh, a, uh, a, a fight between, I didn't actually put this in the, in the sources over here, but in Gittin, Vovum Beis, there's a, there's a discussion about the Pilegesh Begiva. Pilegesh Begiva, a terrible incident where a man separated from his wife, brought her, brought her back, and there was this whole terrible rape, murder, and civil war. Very, very dark era in Jewish history. Why did he separate from his wife in the first place? The Gomorrah wants to know. So the Gomorrah says two options. One is that because it was something to do with the intimate relationship. Nima um, The other option was that Zuv Matsala, that, that, that in the cooking there was a fly, meaning to say that she was she, in, in, in um, you know, we'll call it the gastronomical quadrant of their lives. You know, the, he felt that, 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 that it was unacceptable. Okay, so the Gomorrah says, the Gomorrah says they, they went to, to uh, they went to Eliyahu and they said, what was the truth? Meaning, if you're to reverse back historically, what actually, what, meaning, what, what actually happened if you, were, if you had a closer security camera in their house? What happened? So how, what does Hashem say happened? So Eliyahu says, Ikeda Amri. Nima Matzala, Ikeda Amri, Zuv Matzala. Meaning God says both. Wait a second. <laughs> it either was one or the other. So the Gemara says, no. Really what happened was both occurred. The question is, is what was, what started the problem? And what was the straw which broke the camel's back? Which means that both could potentially exist, even though to us the two couldn't exist, but naturally there was a problem in the relationship in two areas, and both were in fact true. Which means to say that Gemara is suggesting that the notion of Elu Ve'elu doesn't mean to say that just for the effort, or just because of accentuation of the correctness that they're, they're, both, they're both true. Maybe what makes them both true is that you can, we can't necessarily understand how the two can coexist, but there is space in what occurred for both to actually coexist. Just a very basic example, you know, they say they take four blind men into a room, and they ask them, what do you have in front of them? So it's an elephant. So they, they, what happens is um, each of them goes in, makes their observations, and comes out, and, um, and, um, and they, they, they ask the report, what did you find there? So one man says, an elephant is like a tree trunk. The other one says, an elephant is like a hose pipe. That one says an elephant is like a rope, and that one says an elephant is like a brick wall. And <laughs> what are they talking about? They, they were in the same room, it was the same elephant. What was happening? So it depends what part of the elephant they were touching. If, if the one was hugging the leg, that's a tree trunk. If one was holding the, the, the trunk, that's the hose pipe. If one was hold, holding the tail, that's the, the rope. The one was, was, was patting the stomach, that's like a brick wall. So meaning to say, are they incorrect? They're not incorrect. They're describing the same reality, but they don't have access to the full reality because that's the only part of the part they have access to. What, what is evoked over here is that, perhaps on an even deeper level, what it means to say is that there's certain concepts. Let's say you have a particular item in the world. Is it Asr or Mutter? So the way Rav Kuk understands this is, is that item has 73% Heter, but it also has 27% of Isur in it. So when there's an argument about it, what's essential, what's Elo Ve'elo Dever Elo 
is they are accentuating the, the dual definition of that item, of that entity in the world. How does it coexist? Well, the answer is God created it in a way that it has both elements within it. And their argument is because they're accentuating both elements, which is why Rav Cook says famously in his Siddur that um, that, that, that wise sages bring about more peace. Now, that's not really exactly accurate. You know, they're arguing all the time. That's not so peaceful. So, Sarah Cook says, no, Sh- Shalom isn't peace, Shalom is Shlemus, is completeness, wholesomeness. How do you arrive at wholesomeness? When you get closer to the holistic truth, the fact that you can have a concept which is both. And means to say, actually, they are both objectively true. Normatively, we have to pass in one way. We're going to pass in the roiv. It is 73% mutter in the end of the day. But in definition, they're both correct. They're both absolutely right because that, uh, that aspect, that, uh, uh, that atom, had both, uh, both views in, within it. Let's take a look at the last quote over here. Just uh, um, some the, this, uh, beautiful quote of, um, that is, um, that is um, to be found in Source 16. This is uh, Rav, Rav Ronnie Ziegler who's talking about the lonely man of faith. And he says the following. Rav Soloveitchik's book, The Halachic Mind, establishes the philosophical basis for the assertion of the cognitive and methodological, uh, methodological autonomy of halacha. Actually, like the learning man in faith, the halachic man focuses not just on halacha, but more broadly on the religious realm in general. In this very technical work, the Rav, um, the Rav claims that the epistemological pluralism of the 20th, 20th century science allows us for the first time to develop a genuine and autonomous philosophy of religion. Epistemology is a science of knowledge dealing in the question of how we know things. Just as contemporary science, especially quantum physics, as opposed to Aristotelian and Newtonian physics, admits a variety of ways of viewing the world and a variety of sources of knowledge, so too must philosophy. Therefore, the elements of a religion, in our terms, the details of halacha, can serve either as the basis for formulating a worldview which is no less valid than, uh, than any other. Since science and philosophy no, no longer claim to describe everything no, 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 knowable, there is now room to turn religion as a source of knowledge, and religion is now free to explain itself in its own terms. Which means to say that it took a long time for humans to catch up on the scientific front to allow us to understand the tools to be able to re-understand the Torah in a better way. But the Maharal was talking about this for centuries in understanding the complexities of conceptualization. It just took us a little while to get there, to be able to understand, to be able to have models for it, to be able to go back into the Torah world to fully understand the complexities beyond the binary logic with which we operate. Anyways, I hope this is meaningful and room for further discussion. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>